Hi there, Mike Lesseter here from Farm Equipment and Strip-Till Farmer Magazines. Thanks for joining us today for How We Did It, Conversations with Ag Equipment's Entrepreneurs. Today I'm with the father-son team of Layton and Nick Jensen of Thurston Manufacturing Company, which manufactures and sells fertilizer injection and tillage equipment under the BlueJet brand. The company was founded by Wayne and his son Layton in 1971 in the northeastern Nebraska village of Thurston, with a population of just 130, pretty close to the same size as their workforce. I've gotten to know these two, and Nick's brother and CEO, Ryan Jensen, from the Farm Equipment Manufacturers Association events and board meetings, and many farm shows and conferences. And since Nebraska joined the Big Ten, we've even hosted each other for tailgate parties at our respective football stadiums in Lincoln, Nebraska, and at my school, the University of Wisconsin. You'll have to ask Leighton and Nick about the series and the unkind words said about Little Red and Bucky Badger. But I will share that the good guys have gone 6-1 and one versus the Huskers since they joined the Big Ten in 2011. And no rebuttals, Nick. Remember, I've got final cut authority on this project. I think our family and our team came out on the other side of that stronger and more focused and really a, a better understanding of what a team has to do going through an adverse time like that. And it was really neat to see that transition looking back on it. That's Nick Jensen talking about some of the challenges the manufacturer faced shortly after acquiring Simonson Ironworks right before the downward slide started in corn. Since its inception in 1971, the company blazed new ground with a number of industry firsts in fertilizer application. It has also expanded its plant operations five times, again in a small rural area that would definitely feel its absence. Before we hit the play button with the Jensens, I wanted to recognize Ingersoll Tillage, who stepped up to keep this podcast going for you and our other listeners. For more on Ingersoll, visit www.ingersolltillage.com. So here we go, the conversations with Leighton and Nick Jensen, starting with an overview of their business. First question, tell us what Thurston Manufacturing does. We uh, manufacture farm equipment as our major product line. The brand is called Blue Jet, and uh, we've been doing this since about 1971. My father started the business, and I was came on board shortly after. We uh, market mostly across the Corn Belt in the U.S., and and uh, that's kind of where we started our business with that market in mind. And since then, we've uh, grown into uh, five different continents and several different countries. So we're pretty proud of the fact that we've spread ourselves out. I just guess I'd add that as a total company, I feel like each one of our brands tries to create uh, innovative solutions that help the customer achieve higher efficiency. That's kind of what we see through uh, if there's a main theme throughout all of our brands, be it Blue Jet or our, our contract manufacturing, our Simonson Ironworks side, or our ground effect skid steer attachments, or even our chuck wagon uh, mobile grilling system. It's kind of about being the most efficient you can be and going from there. So take us back to 1971 when Wayne, your dad, and your grandfather got this business off the ground. What did he see that eventually emerged into this company we have today? Well, we uh, farmed and uh, raised livestock and, and uh, mainly corn. We were just looking for other opportunities to uh, add income to the, the operation and felt that maybe a manufacturing adventure would be interesting and, and uh, kind of fun. My dad found out that uh, he could sell. He was selling a uh, feed supplement in the local area and uh, it was a very high priced uh, supplement but it was very concentrated and, and he was able to sell that. And uh, usually you find that uh, a lot of people will sell on price and uh, he discovered that he's selling on the product. So uh, it was real natural for him to not be afraid of going and, and trying to build something and then go sell it. And that's where his strong point was is selling and also in just managing the business to get it off the ground. So what was the very first product you came to market with? We started with a self-coupling tractor and wagon hitch. We were using on the farm, actually, as it was already a commercial product, and we contacted the maker. He had just fallen out of bed, so to speak, with whoever was making it for him at the time, and the timing just happened to fit, and uh, 
So we picked up that product. It was a patented product, so we paid a royalty and did quite well with it. And then we also had an air supply pickup bumper that we were making at the time. If you recall back in the 70s and maybe even early 80s, a lot of pickups were sold without bumpers. So uh, this was a 6x6 tube that capped the ends and make a license plate cut out and help compressed air to pump up uh, flat tires. And so it was very popular on the farm and we eventually got out of that business because the pickups started coming with their own bumpers and uh, the pickups started changing uh, frameworks and the bolt pattern and so it became more difficult to keep up with the industry. So we evolved into the, more of a farm in the tillage and fertilizer equipment uh, aspect. One of the earlier pieces of literature that I've seen from the air supply bumper he's talking about features my uh, my Aunt Julie, his sister, you know, holding the cord up, kind of like, yeah, I'm going to fill the tires. It's that easy. So it's kind of interesting that way, too, that she was involved and had, had her own little deal with the literature. So the opportunity that, that he saw was because he was a good salesman, it sounds like. So why manufacturing and not distributing someone else's? We, we knew there were actually the first product considered that we looked at were hub and spindles. And the reason we looked at that is because there was a lot of manufacturing in northeast Nebraska and in our region that made farm equipment with wheels and tires. So we thought, well, maybe that's a product that uh, we could supply to other companies. And as we started looking into that, it took a, a lot of capital for the uh, uh, specialized equipment to, to turn castings and that type of thing. And, and so we didn't have the wherewithal to make that investment. So uh, that's when we started looking at other types of ag equipment. So as we were talking with a lot of the other companies, uh, companies that were formed on the farm for a small period of time and not really clear whether it's going to be an enterprise of its own as, as opposed to a sidelighter handling other farmers in the area. When did you know that the uh, that this company was going to be an enterprise of its own? I remember our, our first year we did a lot of uh, repair work and we were trying to find ourselves and and I think the whole year we sold $23,000 for the product and it was, it was apparent then that this is going to be harder than it looked. <laughs> so we didn't let that bother us. We forged ahead and actually probably the third or fourth year in, we hired a, a gentleman that uh, did farming and he was looking for part-time work. And uh, he also did custom application for anhydrous ammonia. So he owned his own toolbar and went out and, did, and, and worked with other uh, farmers to apply ammonia. And uh, he, his biggest challenge was when he raised the toolbar, the tank, the tank wagon tongue would come up and bend because it, it just the hitch goes too high so he came up with a self-leveling hitch for toolbars so we started building this hitch and and it was it was quite successful on three point pounded toolbars and it didn't take us too long to figure out well maybe we should just build a toolbar also and uh, knowing that uh, a lot of the frames out there that were being made were four by four quarter wall tube we decided well let's not make this complicated, let's make a single toolbar out of four by six by half inch thick steel and less welding and, and less labor. And of course we started with a little five shank machine and that's, that's where that grew from. That's about the time that uh, I started getting involved with some of the uh, design work. I'm not a degreed engineer, but I, I've done design work from day one and I started making hinges and making the toolbars fold. So we took a 21 foot toolbar to the, our first trade show and it was a Nebraska fertilizer show. And I, I was there and my dad was there and uh, people would say, well, do you make a 27 foot? Remember the first question and, and dad looks at the guy and says, yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was a bit of a leap, but uh, it was worked very successfully. and. And from there we grew with uh, that product line. So how old would, were you late in 1971? 71, I had just graduated from high school. Okay. And I attended college for two years at the University of Nebraska. And during that time I was on the road selling uh, in that region, uh, selling some of the bumpers and uh, coming back on weekends. And I was, we were still farming then and working with livestock in the farm and also a little bit in the shop in the summer. So what do you remember about the, the conversations that you had with your parents at that time and getting into this business and putting up the capital needed to, to it, get going? It, it wasn't uh, difficult to 
convince each other that you know we're doing the wrong thing or the right thing. I mean, it, it felt comfortable. I, I don't recall all the details on the, the financial side, but I'm sure it took three or four or five years before we were really emerging with some profits. And so it wasn't like it was easy street, but yet uh, it still felt comfortable. And you were farming this entire time? Yes, we farmed about uh, 10 or 12 years into the business. So you were 10 years in when the ag recession really, really hit hard. Yeah. 81 or so. Yeah, we were, we were in the middle of that with the uh, crisis with the grain. Uh, obviously, it's uh, anytime uh, uh, grain prices dip, why, uh, it's a struggle to sell iron. So it's uh, not too unlike today, you know, when we were probably looking at that. Uh, $1 corn then, where it's $3 corn now, well, neither one is profitable in these times. And uh, so it's, it, was a, it was a struggle for a couple of years, and, but we kept forging ahead and, and coming up with new innovations, new products, and, and uh, made it work. Tell us where the whole Blue Jet name came from. When we started the business, uh, actually during the startup, um, we, we kind of wanted to use the name of the town because it's a very small town, uh, Thurston has only got about 120 people. And uh, so we wanted to use that name as opposed to, as opposed to our own name uh, or another name just for a little recognition, thinking that maybe someday we'll do something. <laughs> uh, I've gotten quite a few comments over the years, the town really appreciated that. But the name Blue Jet actually came uh, uh, sitting around our kitchen table uh, my mother had a scratch pad and a pen, and we were discussing different things that we might come up with for a marketing uh, name that's a, a little more special than Thurston. So uh, while Thurston's our incorporated name, we wanted a trade name. Well, the, the school in town had just closed their high school, and the colors were blue and white. So we thought, well, blue would be a good color for that reason, but it's also a good color because there's not many pieces of equipment out there that are blue and that was true at the time and so blue was written down along with a dozen other words on one side of the paper and uh, the first product that we had I mentioned early on was the self-coupling tractor and wagon hitch well it was fast so we related fast to jet so jet ended up on the other side of the ledger so it wasn't too many minutes went by and we put blue and jet together and we dropped the E and added a hyphen, and there we are. What's your earliest memory of uh, Thurston Manufacturing, Nick? I can remember going in as a kid when either uh, mom couldn't find the sitter for the day or, you know, things like that, and going in and hanging around the office, a couple of the salesmen that still remember very fondly and things like that, and remember going to state fairs every once in a while, and. Uh, and, uh, when dad would bring us along and mostly begged mom to go on the rides and go get the go go try the food but uh but learned a little bit about uh about selling even even when we were growing up sure and then uh having mom and dad just basically just basically right down the road being able to come up to the plant whenever we needed something or anything like that the the factory was actually just up the hill from the elementary school that made things pretty easy for getting off of school and either going to grandma and grandpa's house which was also kind of just up the hill or things like that so there's a lot of fond memories there of being there and being around it so yeah and you kind of gravitated toward the the sales and marketing side that's where you were personally most excited about the business. Yeah, yeah, that, that seemed to be what excited me and it seemed to be where I fit best. I like to meet new people. I like to I like to hear about their experiences. I like to help them solve challenges. That's where I felt that it was a really good fit for me. We have so many different unique products that we build and several of them have been compared to kind of a rector set type pieces. You can kind of take this piece here and move it over here and help a guy customize and maybe come up with a solution that he hadn't thought of before or maybe he had thought of, didn't know how to get to or, or things like that. And that's been, that's been really, really rewarding for me. When did you start putting him to work? What, what age was he contributing around the, the joint? Oh, I don't recall for sure. Um, I'm sure in, in high school we, we had him in the shop, if nothing else, sweeping the floor, but uh, I'm sure we did some, some activity with some machinery, but mm -hmm. it didn't take too long to see that he had a talent with uh, people and, and uh, he enjoyed it, so we kind of let him go. 
they trusted me with the pattern torch in the factory. Yeah. Yeah. That when I was in high school and they trusted me with the broom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> never, uh, never really, uh, never really tried to pass the welding test and I did never do uh, anything in paint, but uh, me and the pattern torch were pretty good friends until that got replaced with a better machine. So if anybody bought a Coulter from us from, I don't know, about maybe 1995 to 1997, 1998, there's a, there's a chance that I probably cut that Coulter arm out right. for them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nick, tell us today about what your role in the company is, and I'll also ask you about Ryan. Oh, sure. Yeah. I Well, uh, of course, uh, I, I serve as the company's president, and that's on uh, kind of Thurston Manufacturing Company has a has an umbrella of brands, and, and so I serve as Thurston Manuf- Manufacturing Company's president. My brother Ryan serves as the CEO right now. Uh, Dad serves as the chairman of the board, and as a family, we all kind of sit on the board together and, and make make decisions and do the strategic plan and everything like that. So, on a day-to-day basis, my job really comes down right now to the marketing team, and then when we need somebody to step into that presidential role and we need somebody to do executive functions, that that falls on me as well. But to put on the shows like this and to make sure that. Uh, the sales team is coordinated with our with our brand message and everything like that. That's what I that's what I'm doing currently on a daily basis. And then tell me about uh, Ryan, Ryan's role in the company as well. Ryan came in on the operations side. He took a little bit different path than I did. So when when we were coming out of college, uh, it had, it had kind of been to communicated to us that if we wanted to come back into the business, we were to maybe get some experience outside the business first or or. Uh, get a master's degree or something like that so we didn't just you know go to high school go to four years of college and come right back into the business and I think looking back on that that was a very very wise move after college I sold uh, I sold real estate signs in Dallas for a couple years just uh, just getting into that market and it got me sales and marketing experience in a completely different industry and things like that my brother Ryan getting back to him he he chose a different route he chose an accelerated uh, MBA program out at Oregon State so when he came back with that MBA program it was a no-brainer to have him go right into operations and he seemed to fall into that role and I, I tell you, as the, as the corn price went up and we were meeting new challenges in how do we get enough product out the door to meet the demands of the customers and the distributors and the dealers, I don't know how we'd have done it without Ryan. I mean, he's, he, he took those things that he had learned and he applied and he just made our business soar during that time. That's what he does on a daily basis. And then, of course, CEO stuff as well. Uh, but, you know budgets and, and making sure everybody's following those and financials and things like that so yep well, ha- having gotten to know you guys the last 12 13 years i'm impressed on how well you work together and also the vision that you had on the succession plan tell me a little bit about how how you set this up to to make the family business work and to set it up for for these guys to, to continue to move it forward well it, it might seem complicated but I, I don't look back and say well, why did we do this or why did we do that it, it just happened I, I guess maybe I expected it to happen I never discouraged and I never encouraged the kids but um, it, it just happened and uh, I'm tickled to death that they're both uh, both boys are interested I've, I've also got a daughter that uh, is currently in Colorado Springs as a teacher and uh, she's not directly involved with the business, although she does help with payroll over the internet. So she's kind of involved, but uh, not to the extent that the boys are. I don't ever remember feeling any pressure to come back or anything like that. Obviously, you know, they would think it would be really nice if we lived close, but you know, that's something different. We never felt any pressure to come back and think God willing and the business continues and everything that, you know, uh, I don't see me pressuring my kids to do it either, and I sure hope they decide to one day, you know. Question that I'll ask both of you. At age 18, did you think you'd be doing what you're doing today? My vision was to farm at that point in time. I didn't have any experience with manufacturing at that time. I, I looked at it as another opportunity. My role in the business kind of from day one has been on the design side, and uh, that's my love. 
and I remain there today. But yes, I, I saw as, as I was growing up through with the business that the farm uh, would have been okay, but I could see a vision where the company would outgrow the farm and in terms of uh, opportunities. And uh, at, at some point in time, 10 or 12 years, we decided, well, let's rent the land out and just spend, focus our time on the factory and, and it's all, it's all been good. But you did. Well, at, at age 18, you know, when you're first coming out of high school, graduating from a class of 34 and in a small town, kind of have that attitude of, well, kind of tired of the small town life and going to go off and away somewhere to college and didn't know exactly what I wanted to do for sure. I was really interested in business and I was really interested in politics. And so that took me to SMU to pursue degrees in political science and in business. They had good programs for that. And uh, at 18, I can't say that I, I really thought that I'd be back into the business, but at 19 and at 20, as the big city life starts to wear on you and you start to remember how nice things are back in small town, you, you kind of change perspective a little bit. And by 23, when you're married and you're thinking, well, maybe it's time to settle down and start raising a family, all of a sudden that small town with that good school system looks awfully good. And so at 18, I, I can't say that I, was, uh, I knew I'd be back. Um, but it was it was always there, and uh, it was always it was always in my mind, at least, as as something that was a possibility. Hope you're enjoying the interview so far. Here's a quick word about another project from our editors here at Lesser Media that you want to make sure you're subscribed to. Hi, I'm Kim Schmidt of On the Record. Prepared by the editors of Ag Equipment Intelligence, our On the Record is a short form podcast you can take in during a cup of coffee. Released twice a month, this 10-minute podcast summarizes all the important news you need to know as it's happening in the North American farm machinery biz. Search Ag Equipment Intelligence on your favorite podcast station. And now back to Mike and the Farm Equipment Podcast. Give me a timeline of the, uh, the first manufacturing facilities, what machines you had relative square foot. When we first started, we uh, actually uh, bought a grain storage building. It was 40 by 180, so we had 7,200 square feet. Uh, we had a bandsaw, we had a couple of drill presses, we had a, a pretty good sized punch press, and a handful of welders, and a paint booth. And uh, that's where it all started. Now, how long did you remain at that size before you made the next in investment? In, in, in uh, 1979, uh, we moved into a, a brand new facility. Uh, it's about a, a half mile away. Since then, we've added on to that four times. But, in, of course, the machinery is all different and updated. So it's a lot different. It's five times, isn't it? Because the last one was the paint booth, right? So we had yeah. one, two, three, four, yeah, five, five times. Five expansions. That was about the time I was out there. You had just completed that. You know, you're, you're into a lot of different products, but if we had to pick five most significant product inventions that you brought to the market, what comes to mind? I would say the uh, anhydrous ammonia toolbar would be the first one. Was what it? year was that? Well, that was that was way back in uh, probably uh, mid to late 70s. And you're talking the four by six design, Yeah, right? that original design. And we expanded from there, of course. Uh, the, the second machine would be our, our deep tillage machine, we call a subtiller, and uh, uh, that machine was so unique. Uh, it was a little bit ahead of its time in the beginning because we can fracture uh, deep compacted soil and not disturb the topsoil. And uh, it's, that product's now been around, I think, 35 years with uh, very few changes to it other than frameworks where we're, we're not folding and you know that, those types of issues but the, the shank design is very close to the original. In, in fact the angle and the point are the same as they were in 1982. 1982 is when we came out with our subtiller 2, our second version okay. of subtiller. Uh, do, you, do you remember the year that the original subtiller came out? That was probably about 77. You guys hit that one right pretty much out of the box. Yeah. yeah. One iteration. <laughs> yeah. The third product, um, I'm trying to recall the order, but uh, the, the third significant product was 
probably the liquid fertilizer applicator. If I can step back to the ammonia applicators, one of the things that generated success for us was the innovation. In, we were the first one in the industry to come out with walking tandem wheels and anhydrous applicator. We were the first one to fold the wings way past center so they didn't fall down, narrows up the transport width. We were ahead of the curve on, on some of those things. When we got into the liquid applicators, uh, we were the first one to use the tall tire, uh, the tractor style tire on those applicators, and now we've since carried that over to the anhydrous ammonia applicators. So th there's been a lot of innovative things that we've done to keep our image well known and, and uh, I think well respected. Another product that we came to be known for is we had a, a uh, distributor that had a salesman and they were in the center pivot irrigation uh, arena or in the region of Nebraska. And uh, the a problem that he foresaw was a they needed a machine to fill the pivot track. And we were making... It's the track master. We already had a, a, a uh, disc blade that was a mount that held one blade. So we, we had made a disc that was individually mounted for the blades. So he wanted to take some parts back to his shop and to play with it. Well, he, he actually came up with this this uh, concept, this the way the Trackmaster works. And uh, and at the time, I don't remember if I told him out of the shoot or, or, or if, during the project, but I says, if you, you want to do this and it works, I'll, you know, I'll give you, I don't know if it was a thousand or two or three or four thousand dollars for your efforts and uh, it's going to come back to us. Oh, he was tickled to death about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so uh, that's where that product was born. And uh, it's been a, a pretty big volume product for us over the years. One of the other innovations that we came forward with for the anhydrous ammonia applicator was a, a different shank. Of course, in the early years, we used a coil shank, which had a, a, a double loop coil on the top, and it was a square shank, and, and they worked quite well for the time. And then the industry kind of changed to a, a one by two, what we call a flat chisel type shank. And uh, that particular shank was okay, but it, it was vulnerable to breakage. I got to thinking, well, there's got to be a better way to make a shank. So I come up with a, an inch and a quarter by two shank that was edge bent. And like all of our shanks at the time, we flattened the bottom to bolt the knife directly to the side of it. And uh, uh, came up with a, a rigid mount to start. Then we developed the spring-loaded bundle, which the spring bundles were already in the industry, but just not with that shank. And uh, then we later on came with our uh, uh, AR700 mount, which is an auto reset. Uh, type shank that uh, that really took off well for us as another component of that toolbar. An additional uh, innovative portion would be the, the the rolling coulter. Like a lot of our products, we, we kind of kind of like to think out of the box. You know, a lot of the coulters at the time had a horizontal spring that was a little bit complicated to make, and and so I came up with a design that. Uh, the spring was actually in a vertical position and it, the nose of the colder arm came up and pushed pressure on the spring and and uh, through about the six months of toying with the best uh, design way we were we were in business with a new colder and that was very uh, successful with both our fertilizer equipment as well as our subtiller. I think it's also important to note we we try and push the market in the industry. Uh, we talked about efficiency a little earlier. We try to push the market on efficiency in terms of width on a lot of these things. Um, for example, on our ammonia applicators, we were the first one to get to 62 and a half feet. In fact, we were the first one by a long ways. I think about the time the next one got in the market, we were celebrating our sixth or seventh anniversary of being there. Um, you know, uh, we were the first one to take a liquid applicator to 90 feet. So, so those kinds of width, width efficiencies have been things that we've always tried to strive to develop and be first to the market on. And another one on the uh, anhydrous ammonia row units would be, would be the sealer. Uh, we have a very unique anhydrous ammonia sealer that can also be used as a strip-tail burmer. It, it was really the first in the industry 
uh, at least that I know of, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. but it's, it really was the first in the industry that had independent arms. So all of a sudden, you didn't have trash balling up between your blades on your sealer. Instead, one would raise up, the trash would go through, set back down. And now there are many, many imitators of that on the yeah. marketplace. And so that's something that I suppose, you know, even though you kind of go, darn it, there's another competitor out there you got to be a little bit proud of. Yeah, blaze the trail. Yeah, right. And so the, the sealer was another one that, that I'm really proud that we came up with first. And so when you combine that and you really think about it, that that whole row unit that we use for not only in ammonia but now a lot of the components that go into strip till are are unique innovations that we have we have developed over time. Another thing that was always paramount in our mind was safety. Uh, as we all know ammonia is a product that you have to respect and understand and and you can't you can't be careless with it. I'm not sure when we came out with it, but we came out with a flash guard that went over the quick coupler. And the idea here was uh, when you plug it, when the coupler comes uncoupled, you have to plug it back in. Well, that's the time to get sprayed with ammonia if you're not careful. Well, this splash guard, even if you weren't careful, stopped it from hitting you in the face. And uh, we felt real proud and it was a good innovation for the industry. It's, it's changed a little bit as, as things have evolved uh, because couplers have changed, but uh, it still remains a, a, an important piece of our product. And uh, another thing that we've always tried to do, or is always concerned about for, from the safety aspect, is the, is the transport width. And while somebody from the city will still complain that, boy, that thing takes up the whole road, <laughs> we're consistently anywhere from one to six or eight feet narrower than our competitors. And the way we fold, and uh, uh, we've always said that you know an inch on the end of your nose is a long ways. Well, if a foot on the highway is a long ways too. Yeah. So we we've, we've tried to, to keep that in our mind when we develop new products and throughout the whole period of time. Let me ask you a, a question about the approach to to new product innovation because I'm aware of other products that could have been in your top five. Some companies and conservative family companies could sit where they are and say we, we made some good products and we're going to keep churning those out but that you guys are making a decisive action to continue to innovate and invest. Can you tell me where that came from and why that is? I Honestly I think we like to help people solve problems. A lot of the best ideas that that we have come up with have been from somebody that has come to us or somebody at a farm show that is that it had a particular problem and either maybe thought they had the solution for it or maybe had no idea but said hey i really need something to help with this it was a lot like the track master story that that dad told but do you want to address that a little more he, he does dad's day-to-day -day job by the way is uh, the to head the engineering department so he, he can probably address that a little better so we don't try to be innovative just to be innovative. We, we try to solve problems. And again, I mentioned about not trying to see what everybody else is doing. We try to think outside that box and, and uh, you know, how can, we, how can we do this better? And uh, usually what we end up with doesn't necessarily cost less. It's not the cheapest out there. But if, in our minds, if we can justify that there's a, there's a reason to pay a little more for it, we can usually sell that. We've never been the low, low price uh, implement uh, at the show. We're always near the top, and uh, we're not ashamed of that at all. Uh, it's, it's easy to sell a product that's got a lot of good features, and uh, maybe back to innovation, one of the biggest things we've ever done is a five-year frame warranty, and nobody touches that in the industry yet uh, because they, they're afraid to, I think. <laughs> You see some threes out there, but nobody has a five. And our failure rate on an overall warranty, whether it's a frame or whether it's a, a, a piece on the machine that's bolted on, our, our warranty rate is less than a half a percent sales. And that's a pretty darn good rate in the industry. And that goes right back to our people. I, do, I think we have some of the best people working for us. We're, we're blessed with the team that we have. We've got guys that are getting 30 and 35 year 
employee awards for being there that long. And we've got uh, t uh, the new guys that come in with welding certificates. And the first thing that the production manager does was put his hand over his shoulder and say, that's a real nice certificate you got. Um, but we're gonna have you go over here and work with Tim for just a little bit, just to make sure that you understand how we want you to do it. And because it's been developed over that time, they take a lot of pride in their work and there's nothing they like more than us coming back from a show and telling them a story about how a farmer stood out here and said, boy, that's a really nice weld. What kind of, what kind of robot you got that does that weld in your shop? And you look at him and said, well, that's Troy. You know, and he, he does do a nice job and we'll tell him. We do have some robots and we do have some CNC machines, so don't get me wrong, but, but we've got some great people. And, uh, and, and that really makes a difference. And, and the relationships that you build with those people over time really, really reflects in the quality of the work that they put out, I think. We'll get back to the Jensen's and Thurston manufacturing story in a moment. But first, a word of thanks to Ingersoll Tillage, who sponsored our time and travel and bringing you these family-run manufacturing stories to you. Ingersoll specializes in displays and coulters for optimal seedbed solutions. For every tillage and planting practice, there's an Ingersoll application for your needs. To learn more about them, visit www.ingersolltillage.com. And now back to the Jensen's. And for all you family businesses out there, or even you workaholics who can't stop talking shop at home, you're going to hear how the Jensen clan avoids such matters with a spray bottle and an active trigger finger by Nick's mom and grandmother. So sit back and enjoy part two of the podcast. If we go back to the early days, just for a moment, how'd you guys go to market with these, these products in, in the egg, egg products? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because I left that part out. When we first came up with our ammonia toolbar, we went to our first show, and then we went to our second and our third show. About then, we had an entire group of reps from a competitor come to us and say, we want to sell your product. And we had corn acre coverage across the United States immediately. And that's yeah. how that started. Yeah. And uh, they were a great group of guys. And uh, some of them are still with us. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's been uh, it's it, that was a bit of a chance circumstance, but we'll pat ourselves on the back a little bit. It's they came to us for a reason. Most profitable show you've ever been part of, I guess. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, what year would that have been? That had to be in the uh, late, probably the second half of the seventies, in the seventy-six or seven, somewhere in there. So how did your distribution evolve from that time to current, how, how you go to market with these products? Well, like a lot of things, people retire, people die, uh, people change. And uh, so the evolved part of the fertilizer distribution went to distributors as opposed to the rep model. And uh, that, was a, that was a good blessing because the fertilizer equipment takes more maintenance and, and more spare parts than a subtiller does, for instance. There's more moving parts. It's a higher specialty. It's a higher degree of specialization in terms of in terms of even the technicians that you hire and the and the salespeople that you employ. So a, a dealership for example, they, they can certainly achieve that, and many of them do, but the, our distributors, for example, we, we know each salesperson personally, and it, uh, it makes a difference. Yeah, it, it, the distributors are covering uh, usually uh, multiple states, so it's easier to communicate with one group instead of 100 dealers. And uh, not that we don't have some dealer areas in our uh, tillage products that we sell direct, but uh, for the most part, uh, the fertilizer applicators are all sold through the distributor network. We do have some dealers that sell the fertilizer applicators for us, but they're, they're qualified quite well before we can just say, hey, here's the dealership, have right. fun. You know, all, all small business, probably every business for that matter, there's some, there's some defining moments both on the, on the positive side and those that really anneal you in the fire, so to speak. That moment that you decided to put your head down and come out on the other side. What, when I when I asked about defining moments, what what would come to mind for you? Uh, I'd like to tell a story about when we 
when we purchase assignments and ironworks. And I'm not I'm not saying that it's a it's necessarily a a huge defining moment in the company. That's that's probably yet to be seen, but it might help you jog your memory as to some other times. It was May of 2013, I think, wasn't it, when we bought Simonson? Yes. Is that right? Uh, we we decided to pull the trigger on that. Uh, we'd been using them as a contract manufacturer to make our row units. It was one of our solutions, or Ryan solutions rather, to how do we get more product out the door? Right? Everything's mowing and going, and everything looks like it's going to keep going for forever. And we decided to purchase Simonson and ironworks because we felt that adding a contract manufacturing element to our business was diversifying a little bit and at the same time boy isn't it going to be cool to be able to build our own product as a contract manufacturer and bring it back in and capture those extra benefits and things like that and about the time that we did that is about the time corn started to go down <laughs> and uh, things get a little thin and you start scraping by to find those contract work for Simonson uh, Ironworks at the same time that you're trying to find more business for Blue Jet and things like that and the workload's not double but it's sure a little more than it used to be and uh, I can say as, as a, in terms of a defining moment I think it was maybe one of the first times that the company as a team when Ryan and I were back and, and had, had faced that kind of adversity, um, you know, because I, I mean, when Ryan got back a little, a little bit before things were on the way up, but things got going pretty quick. Mm -hmm. I think our, our family and our team came out on the other side of that uh, uh, stronger and more focused than uh, and and with a different uh, and with a different idea of what management style should look like with two facilities and two brands and things like that, and really a, a better understanding of what uh, what uh, what a team has to do going through an adverse time like that, and it was it was kind of really neat to see that transition. Looking back on it, I think I can add when when both Ryan and Nick were were uh, onboarded, it wasn't too long that. Uh, it, we started instigating a strategic plan and and prior to that we we didn't have a formal strategic plan we were just a family in business and doing doing okay so I think I can uh, attribute uh, a lot of the successful implementation and the, and the drive to get it going to probably to Ryan to uh, to instigate the process and and uh, of course uh, both Nick and Ryan had great input in terms of, of how do we how do we establish what are our core values and, and what what are our goals and and uh, it it really helps us uh, tackle some of the problems when, when you have a recurring problem every few years with fluctuation of markets and mm -hmm. fluctuation of sales you know we can we can look at that plan and say well here's here's what the plan said can we can we get there and, and uh, sometimes we can sometimes you change it we'll get back to the interview in just a moment but here's another free podcast from the lessener media team that you'll want to check out jackson licka here managing editor and host of the precision farming dealer podcast and every other week recording that keeps you and your business up to date on understanding selling and servicing precision ag technologies visit www.precisionfarmingdealer.com or search out Precision Farming Dealer on your favorite podcast channel. And now, back to Farm Equipment for the How We Did It podcast. You talked about how, how critical it was to get those first reps on board, how key and critical of a point that was. Are there, are there other things that are earlier in time that you might recall as, as critical, particularly maybe before Ryan and I joined the business, a, a meeting that you and Grandpa had or a decision that you and Grandpa made or something that would have been? Uh... I, I would say our, our decision to uh, build our new factory in 79 was critical. We were outgrowing our initial facility and uh, we had some, some, we had another local manufacturer in the area that looked at me and says, what in the heck are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, of course, of course, uh, that early on in the business, uh, maybe, you, maybe you don't realize what you're doing, but yet you knew you needed to grow and it seemed obvious to us what we were doing. And along as you look back now, it was absolutely the right thing to do. So, Even with the ag recession hitting you less yeah, than two years later. Yeah, it worked. Yeah. It, we made it work. 
<laughs> uh, that, that's what you got to do. You just got to make it work. Another thing that in a later time, maybe in the past, I don't remember when we actually started, maybe six or eight years ago, was our ISO 9001 yeah, program. That helped a lot. And that made us a lot better company. We were more diligent. We had some diligence before for inventory tracking and, and some of the procedures within the company. But the ISO 9001, you had to do it. And uh, I'm so proud of the people that we've got that uh, have uh, continued that program successfully. Whenever we have an audit, a formal audit every three years, twice now the auditors come back and says, you guys are in the top 5% in the country. Gosh, it just tells you how much the people care about. The ISO 9001 is a buy-in. I mean, it's not something where you just say, well, I'm sure some management teams might just give somebody a book and say, here, we're doing this. But this was a buy-in process where you had to have your upper managers, your middle managers, all the way down to the guy cutting steel. He's got to be on board with the process because if you miss a step, it's a huge deal. And, uh, and you know, it's, uh, it's one of those things where the nice thing about ISO 9001 is they don't ask for perfection, they ask for improvement. And that's another thing that, that we've implemented in our strategic plan and our onboarding process and all the way through the company is is a process of continual improvement you know how how is uh how are you going to be better today than you were a week ago or a month ago or what have you and you can see that come through kind of all the way from an interview process to a job description to annual performance goals you know it, it kind of just all in there was there ever a time that the business was in trouble oh sure probably two or three you, you just got to dig down and get creative, you know, how are we going to meet this next payroll? We've always been very conscious of the, the community. It never crossed our mind that we'd fail. We just had to figure it out. So there was no decision other no. than moving forward? Yeah, moving mm-hmm. forward. Tenacity there in the press. <laughs> if you could go back in time and do a do-over, what, what would you choose and why? Boy, nothing jumps out at me, Mike. Um, we've certainly done a lot of things wrong. I always got a a kick out of my dad. He used to tease me. He says, two heads are better than one, even though one is a cabbage head. (laughs) (laughs) And I think he was talking about me. (laughs) 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 But uh, we've also had a lot of uh, fun with any of our fertilizer applicator products we inject into the soil. And, And we've always said the reason that we inject fertilizer into the soil is because we've never seen roots grow on top of the ground. And when we tell a customer that, it really gets them thinking. Yeah, you know, they'll, it does. they'll smile and they think, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. In terms of a do-over on my part, I guess, uh, I value my mistakes because they're good teaching points. But I think if I, if I, if I had something to do over again, there was a point in time when corn was high that we chose to try and branch out into into different markets and do a lot of market diversification and spend some dollars there. And uh, I think if I had that to do over again, I might choose to diversify some resources differently and maybe do more of, instead of a shotgun approach, more of a rifle approach on one or two markets that really, really made sense. And then maybe do uh, a different product line diversification over here or something different, allocate some resources to, to maybe a market breadth on our, in our current markets or something like that. Um, that, that, that would have been one where given the opportunity and the same things again, I'd probably take a do over on that one. I can recall, Back in the 80s, I think it was, we could foresee a need to inject dry fertilizer. And uh, I got acquainted and and somewhat over-involved with a a dry box that uh, we were going to make. And it was somebody else's design and all the blessings were there to get it done. But but we were about 15 or 20 years ahead of our time. And we spent a lot of effort and time and, and, and never got it off the ground because it, it was it was at the time expensive. And uh, so that would be a, a regret, so to speak, that uh, we could have uh, saved those dollars and put them somewhere else. Talk about dad and grandpa for a moment. I know that uh, a lot of people who are going to be paying attention to this this interview know, know Wayne, but for those who don't, tell us a little bit about his his personality, his background, what, what kind of guy he is, what's important to him. 
Never heard my dad say a, a negative word about anybody. Always thoughtful in what he says and, and never any foul language or anything like that. Had a bad day. I've always respected that. Um, he enjoys, still enjoying life. He just turned 90 recently and uh, lives at the lake in the summer and lives in Mesa in the wintertime. So he's, he's got that part figured out. <laughs> and uh, he's him and mom both are, are still enjoying life. He uh, he never seems to stress about anything. You'll be sitting there talking to him or sitting there uh, watching TV or something. Just every once in a while, I'll just look over and he'll say, so how's business? You know, oh, geez, grandpa, I, you know, I just been traveling so much or I haven't haven't been able to do this or that or three weeks behind on this project or whatever it is he kind of looks at you and he said well that's all right I'll get it figured out somehow I'm sure it'll come around but he always wants to hear how the business is going he always wants to hear what you're up to personally and and yeah it's it's just uh it's just really really nice still having him around and being able to talk to him about that stuff you know because he doesn't. Stress just seems to yeah, melt it roll, off. Of it him. rolls off him. Yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> so. got you guys handling all that. <laughs> yeah, right. One thing that I have learned from both dad and grandpa over the years is if business is starting to trump family, you need to take a look at your priorities. Yeah. You know, and that's something that stuck with me. I, I should mention that my mother was also very involved with the business as far as doing the books in the early years, and uh, she was an important part. My wife came on board and, and uh, uh, she took over a lot of those responsibilities and, and uh, she, she's uh, a trooper. She, she, uh, she brings, brings work home and, and uh, works on her computer at home and, and makes sure the job gets done and never complains about it. But she, she realizes the importance of it for the family as well. People always often ask, well, how do you stay married? <laughs> and I think the, the easy answer is, well, yeah, we talk a little bit about business at home, but not really. You know, you, you got to keep it separate. And uh, that's the key is, is you just can't bring it home with you and, and wail on it. You just got to separate family from business. And Nick uh, stays married because he's on the road so <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah. right, yeah. <laughs> Mom and Grandma are also the ones that keep Christmas from turning into corporate board meetings. They so a spray bottle. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The spray bottle comes out yeah. if, uh, if business is being talked about too much. So they'll, they'll usually let us update Grandpa on what's going on, and that's about yeah. it, you know, yeah. so. <laughs> Looking back on this, late, what are the things that you're most proudest of? Having the kids in with me. It's rare. It happens, but it's rare. Mm -hmm. What's you, Nick? Uh, yeah, it, it's being able to work with dad and grandpa on a daily basis. <laughs> Can't say I haven't ever yelled over the phone, you know, this, that, or the other, what the heck's going on, or why isn't this done, or why isn't that done, or, you know, but just being able to, to work with them. And we, we have a, I don't know if it's unique, but we just have a way of, separating family from business and working through things and and making sure everything gets done and it's just so nice to be able to work with your family and and be able to uh be able to accomplish something together that not only builds a great product for customers but also helps build the family and keep everybody doing what they like to do and that's the greatest thing for me is is being able to work with them i think i could ex expand a little bit I, earlier I mentioned about my dad's vocal demeanor and uh, I can say that the way we're doing business today with the family, never heard a, a shout or a, a negative word. There's been discussion, <laughs> yeah, but nothing heated. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Ryan made a comment the other day, he says, you know, if we got to make a decision that's, that's uh, a big decision, and and two of us are thinking one way and and if the other the third one has a, a, a real argument we'll probably go with him <laughs> uh, just because mm -hmm. we don't we don't want to split the party mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you know that's that's interesting too i mean it there's so many times that ryan will have something that comes up and and dad and i'll be in different places 
and I don't know how many times that I'll answer a question that that he asked and he said oh good dad said that too and so we're all on the same page and so that's it's really nice to know that that for the most part the big decisions we're all on we're all on the same page we all have the same ideals and the same goals for the business going forward yeah. so yeah tell me about what you see as the reason for the short line companies place in the market in the future for them. it's going to continue to be innovation when you look at where the short line industry has grown up and uh, what it is now today it's always focused on innovation um, no matter how much the bigger brands try to try to dominate the marketplace there's a different demeanor in this industry farmers appreciate innovation they appreciate quality they appreciate uh, variety and they they go to the short line manufacturer for that and uh, and that's why that's why dealers want short line manufacturers represented in their in their product catalogs and that's why farmers want short line manufacturers on their yards is because they understand that the value that a short line can bring to their their farm particularly if they want a piece of equipment customized to suit their particular need they're not going to find that in a major brand you know compared particularly compared to some of our large large competitors we're we're a small family business and i think the farmer realizes that for the most part he's a small family business too and so that that type of uh just just when they walk on the lot of a lot of times that that commonality in and of itself gives us gives us an edge up in a relationship that's, that's an interesting point looking at you know the last 60 or so years there were an awful lot of, of small privately owned enterprises that came into this industry someone's got a better way to make an implement a better idea for a, an implement it's got to be much much harder to do today than it was 50 years ago well i should ask you is it is it harder to penetrate this business today than it was a couple generations it comes back to what Nick talked about earlier with with what the farmer wants and expects and needs and if, if we can solve a problem we're we're going to be the go-to guy if we can't or if we miss well shame on us and and we don't chase every rabbit down the bunny hole but uh, we'll you know if we see an opportunity where there's some maybe some volume we'll go there I guess I would say uh, one thing that I feel is is a challenge for short line companies today continues to be getting message out hey we're over here we have a new product you should come and see it i i don't know if it's a it's a mixture of advertising budgets not being as big as the big guys obviously and and uh and things like that but uh that's why uh a lot of our our industry uh, the short liners you see them online you see them. that's why the dealership is still important to them as well though is because if a farmer can walk into a dealership and and see something that's new on the lot that's that's from a short line manufacturer that's that's where they get to look at it other than like a farm show like we have here normally it's sitting on the highway and he's driving by and he does a double take and he comes in and he he looks at it and uh that's little hard to find these days where a, a dealer will stock a piece like that so just getting the message out as to what's new and what's innovative is a real challenge right now for the industry it's it's probably the distribution side that makes it most challenging today versus you know uh, starting a new company and having a great idea a great mousetrap and wanting mm -hmm. to take it out there it's the distribution side that's going to get in the way oh absolutely i mean there's there's so many other solutions as far as internet and social media and things like that to try and get that message out there but one thing that continues to that it continues to come back to is you can't see a weld online very well which goes to quality if you've got a really innovative product the guy still wants to touch it and he wants to talk to you about it and he wants his questions answered when it comes down to it they really do still want to have a conversation with you i don't know if you've ever thought about this before so if you need to take a moment to think about it nick and i share a interest in movies we, we yeah. talk movies a lot <laughs> and i know you guys have seen the, the movie it's a wonderful love mm -hmm. right yep. Stewart movie. yep so there's a there's a point in that movie where George Bailey starts to understand what would have happened if he wasn't around. 
And I want you guys to think about the, the employees, the suppliers, the, the lenders, the, the dealers, the distribution. Um, we, we've certainly benefited from uh, you guys having some trust in us in the early years. Just chew on that for a moment and, and share an observation or two, if you will. I understand the question. I don't know where to go with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, because it's an interesting question. Part of, part of me wants to say that somebody would fill, if it wasn't us, somebody would fill that void. You know, it, it might not exactly be Thurston, Nebraska, and it might not exactly be exactly what Blue Jet makes or anything like that. Um, I think there are aspects to our company that are certainly unique and, and things that we do really, really well. And, uh, and certainly employees that we have that we wouldn't trade for the world. But in a society that gives us basically anybody the opportunity to start from square one and see what you can build, I, I have a hard time believing that somebody in the marketplace might not have come in and, and filled that void, you know, uh, to an extent, but not in the same, not in the same way that we have and I, I, in, in that manner and the way that we've done it. I think is fairly unique and with the resources that we've been able to use in a in a county with a population of just a little over 5,000 people and and things like that uh, to, to growing it to something where uh, where it's it's got uh, pieces of distribution in in you know five continents and things like that I, I, I think that that might be a bit unique, but somewhere in the marketplace that demand would have insisted that that gap would have been filled by somebody, I think. Is that a fair answer? Yeah, I think so. We've, we've had uh, uh, some, we've had many suppliers that uh, when they go and get stuff, they've stuck with us. And, and one of the things that helped, you know, make, we talked about making it work. And uh, we've had a lot of customers that, that uh, continue to come to us and, and repeat customers buying our product over and over again uh, as they expand or as they as they grow their their operation through uh, some of the innovative things that we may have come up with uh, but really the people that, that you employ are the grassroots of, of what's going on and, and uh, uh, I think Nick said it earlier you know you got to treat them right and do everything you can to to maintain them if you get people coming in every six months and turnover it's very expensive to run a business and we've been very fortunate uh, to uh, have a, a, a good retention plan to keep them uh, the, the negative thing about that is is that the workforce ages and uh, so you have to be careful of that and, uh, and still bring in new but uh, it, it's important to, to it's like Ed Sullivan, you keep spinning the plates and, and uh, keep them from dropping. And, and uh, the more you can spin and, and keep them going way, the better off you're going to be. Yeah, I know it's a, it was probably a difficult question to ask of you. It's a question that should be asked probably of your employees and the suppliers who you kept busy during tough times. But I, I, I wanted to ask it because I think it gets underestimated. Um, how many lives you affected right there in Thurston by keeping those those men and women employed and letting their families pursue their dreams and keeping the small businesses who are supplying you with these goods going. Thanks. Appreciate it. Is there, is there anything that I have not asked you guys about? I'd like to thank the listeners for uh, things you've been doing uh, uh, for our company and for other companies as well. You're, you're an innovative company yourself. And uh, we appreciate uh, a lot of the things that you bring to the table. Uh, it's helped us grow, and uh, so it's a mutual uh, beneficial arrangement. So thank you. Yeah, the solutions you guys present to us, I, I feel that uh, I feel that Lesseter Media understands our business at a level that some others don't, and that's really appreciated because you can tell our story better than most thank you the other thing i think i wanted to mention and, and dad did touch on it a, a bit 
is uh, the women in our lives certainly put up with a lot of stuff. <laughs> Whether it be late night meetings or, you know, early early shows or weeks on end of nothing but work while they get out and cut the yard and, you know, uh, deal with kids or so. Uh, yeah, whether the, I know both you guys have very, very, very well. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. I did pretty well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but I, you know, that often gets overlooked uh, because, boy, if I didn't have the support system that I had at home, I couldn't do what I do, and I love to do what I do. So um, that that's really important to me as well. And I still have fun at work every day, so I don't have any reason to leave yet. Yeah. Thanks to Nick and Leighton for their story, and also to Ingersoll Tillage for helping make this podcast series possible. Check out Ingersoll and its displays and coulters at www.ingersolltillage.com. Both Thurston and Ingersoll are title sponsors of our annual National Strip Tillage Conference, we thank both for their support in expanding the knowledge base on this specialized conservation tillage method. Before we sign off today, remember that you can also receive the next episode the very moment it's completed by signing up to receive the Farm Equipment Podcast free on your favorite podcast channel. And a quick shout out to the audio talent here at Lesseter Media, Jeff Lazeski and Joe Kinsley. Thank you guys. And thanks for joining me for today's conversation with Leighton and Nick Jensen of Thurston Manufacturing Company. Till next time, I'm Mike Lesseter of Farm Equipment and Strip Till Farmer, signing out on How We Did It, Conversations with Ag Equipment's Entrepreneurs. <music>